0: hey 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 welcome <laughs> a little bit of a delay there sorry uh welcome to california haunts radio tonight how's everybody doing we've got like a lull in the storms for california but it's going to start up again tomorrow so everybody's still batting down their hashes here i know there's some people that have no power right now and um i'm sorry about that i'm just lucky that i have power right now because last time we had the big storms i couldn't even do shows at that point and anyway, I want to welcome you all. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour or so, and I have a great guest on tonight. And um, it's kind of like that, that whole separation, you know, that, that nine degrees of separation thing, because my father um, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and he had a lot of stories about uh, the ships on Lake Erie and, and, and the wrecks. And not to, and also to add, and my father was also in the U.S. Coast Guard, and he... Um, love lighthouses in fact that he wanted to end up as a lighthouse tender back in the old days back in world war ii uh but anyway um my name is charlotte i'll be your host for the next hour i'm the owner of the california haunts paranormal investigation team www.californiahaunts.org and you can find the radio show at www.californiahauntsradio.com see it's a mouthful and um we are a non-profit paranormal team up and down the state of california there's 35 of us that are spread in different um cities and counties and we also have members in oregon washington nevada and hawaii anyway again i want to tell everybody um if you you hear any noises and background i have a 17 year old dog that is going to be put down on friday and um, she's lost her mobility i think it's her front legs but she's lost her mobility so She's a medium-sized Australian Kelpie, which is a working dog, and uh, she likes to keep busy. And the problem we have now is she can't do that, and so she gets very frustrated when she tries to move around. So if you hear her whimpering or or barking or anything in the background, because the mic will pick it up, don't feel like she's in pain because she's not in pain. She's really frustrated because she can't move around. So that's what that noise is. And um, I feel for her because I, I know that it's just agonizing for her to not be mobile. Anyway, thank you for coming. And uh, our guest tonight, excuse me, it's going to be one of those guys, is Rick Mixter. Rick Mixter. Um, You probably have seen him. You've probably heard of him. He's done a lot of TV shows on various channels, uh, including PBS. And he's a diver, a pilot. He's done so much stuff. I'm going to let him tell you what he's done. I don't want to screw it all up. But he's done so much stuff, and one of the things he's done is he's written a couple books on the wrecks of the Great Lakes. And that includes, and the one you guys might recognize is that song, Edmund Fitzgerald. That's one of the wrecks that he um, talks about. Uh, So I'm really excited to have him on. So without further ado, let's just jump right in here.
1: So great to talk to you, Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me on CHR.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming on.
1: It's my pleasure, and I'll tell you, with the Great Lakes, uh, nothing gets spooky than having a lake Erie in places like Death's Door and the graveyard of the Great Lakes. We certainly have our haunts too in the Great Lakes.
0: Interesting. Well, how did you get interested in, um, you know, studying on uh, on the Great Lakes?
1: I grew up in Marquette, so that's literally, you know, within seventy miles of where the Edmund Fitzgerald went down. I remember the big storm although it wasn't nearly as bad as this uh, blizzard we had in 1978. But but to watch the news as a youngster and to see that 29 men vanished on what was at one time the largest freighter on the Great Lakes. You know, again, just like Titanic, something so big we didn't think it could sink. So that kind of got me interested. I had a buddy that would scuba dive, but I never thought, you know, a kid growing up in a trailer in the middle of the UP, you know, pretty remote that I'd ever be able to afford doing it. So I became a television journalist and a DJ. And as I was a reporter, I actually covered the largest tanker explosion on the Great Lakes called the Jupiter. And we were literally within, you know, eyeshot of watching uh, 3 million gallons of gasoline go up. And wow. sadly, a sailor losing his life. So that got the whole, you know, rolling for me. And I finally told my boss, you know, I, I want to do this. I want to explore the shipwrecks. They paid for it with a lot of, uh, signing off of, of, uh, waiver of, uh, danger, which, you know, it's a fantastic sport. And it's just like, mm-hmm. I'm a pilot too. Um, you have to be able to have, you know, some risk, but we train to make it as safe as we can. And that allows me to go to depths up to 160 feet. Wow.
0: That's incredible. Um, like I see, I just had a question. You're, you're telling me so much here. Uh, for people that don't know what the Great Lakes look like, because when people, you know, there's, there's people that haven't been out in the world, tell them what they're like. I mean, I'm trying, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around when, when you get near them. I've, I've been out to Lake Erie. I've been to Cleveland, been out there, you know, and seen it. It's hard to wrap your head around that it's actually a lake when, when you're on the beach.
1: Oh, absolutely, and and for astronauts, they have to go two hundred miles up to see the Great Lakes, and even then, it's very difficult to see all of them. <laughs> so massive amounts of water. The Lake Superior being the largest freshwater lake with depths up to thirteen hundred feet. We've got these massive lakes that have had um, sailing vessels, steamships for the last three hundred years. And this was really the route to get around before highways. You know, we didn't have mm-hmm. an integrated highway system until the mid nineteen seventies, really. So most of our cargo was being moved on these Great Lakes. So five to eleven thousand, twelve thousand ships lost, uh, you know, were lost on the Great Lakes. So all of those stories are out there. They're all completely captivating, especially the ones that get involved in mysterious disappearances, or in my case. Massive storms is where I've really, you know, kind of made my name on. Researching not only the storms and diving the shipwrecks from 1905, 1913, 1940, but most importantly, using my television reporter skills to find survivors and to find the men that would hop into helicopters and rescue boats to go out and rescue them. And much like your dad, who was in the Coast Guard, those right. stories, as you know, are just so captivating. And to think mm-hmm. that, you know, there were people that put their lives on the line to, in many cases, with the life saving service row their boats out there. There were no motors for the first, you know, 30 years. And Mm -hmm. uh, their motto was you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. That is captivating to me.
0: That is too. And isn't it true that the Great Lakes even have their own wet weather patterns?
1: We really do. And and that's, you know, we've heard of the gales of November. If you've heard Gordon Lightfoot's song about the Edmund Fitzgerald, you mm-hmm. know that the worst time to be on the lakes and a very significant amount of our wrecks go down in September, October, November. And that's because mm-hmm. the evaporation of these massive amounts of water that now took all summer to heat up are now cooling down. And in many cases, the, our temperatures get uh, 26 below zero wind chill so in the wintertime it's it's bringing all that energy up in the form of, uh, of evaporation that gets fed by arctic winds that come down from canada that are sub-zero and our weather can snap just from mm-hmm. you know 40 degrees to minus 10 and it's killed sadly a lot of sailors a lot of um, hunter and fishermen who've gone out in the lakes but um, and taking many big freighters, too, with waves that are 30, 40 feet high right. and winds that were sustained as, you know, California just got hit with heavy winds. Yes. Think, of, think of 60 mile an hour winds for 16 hours and these, these captains just being trapped out there with no place to hide.
0: Well, see, again, you, you brought that up because people don't realize this, the, the size of these lakes and the fact that they have there's. There's their own weather they've got the, the waves have white caps. It looks like the ocean. when you're standing there at the beach, it looks like you're literally at the ocean.
1: And many of the ship captains, especially our Coast guard captains I've interviewed, said that it's even more dangerous than the great or the ocean because the ocean will have massive swells, much larger than the Great Lakes. And it'll go up and down and the ships might toss one way or the other, but on the mm-hmm. Great Lakes, they bounce off the shore. And so they get these confusing seas that flip ships over because they're coming from three different directions. So some mm-hmm. will pitch and yaw on the Great Lakes, you'll pitch yaw and, and you know, flip over all at once. And they, they just don't know what to do. And the design of our lake freighters are completely different. Than what you typically see on the ocean, they're designed to go underneath the loaders, so they're very long, with uh, usually a, a foc'sle area on the front and the bow where the pilot, you know, the pilot house is, and then all the engineering back. And that long, narrow design, our ships are a thousand feet long. Ago, that design is very susceptible to big waves, and that's how I fear some of these ships have gone down, broken on two made waves that went down.
0: Let's talk about a couple of the, uh, the major wrecks. I mean, everybody know well, not everybody, but, you know, you you got the Edmund Fitzgerald, of course, uh, that was made famous by the song. But, but what other ones are out there? Like, you talked about the Jupiter.
1: Oh, the Jupiter was that tanker that exploded. Uh, it was the largest tanker. It came into Bay City and was offloading. It had a pretty rickety dock where they were at, as they proved later on in the investigation. Another vessel, the Buffalo, went by, and the Buffalo was notorious for coming up the river fast. When you come in too fast, you make a large weight that moved the ship, and it separated the line, electrical line parted and sparked, and with 3 million gallons of fuel offload, it just went up. And it was amazing that only one was lost, because we're all jumping in the water, so two or three of them were burned, not to, you know significantly but enough. it was pretty scary and then that one guy jumped into the water without his life jacket and was lost it was oh. the current of saginaw river you know it, it was impossible for another crewman to save him. so it's just tragic and it happened right there and, and it really for me gave me a, an awe for the people who go out and put their lives on the line to deliver cargoes so, i mean this is the most cost efficient way to get gasoline to get uh, iron ore especially um, we see a lot of coal being moved and wheat grains that come through the Great Lakes. You can't haul them more efficiently than on the Great Lakes, so it's still a great way to do it. It's just we're very susceptible to the waves, and uh, it's a real problem when, especially now, we've had several days where the freighters have been hiding even these giants that are 300 feet longer than the and Fitzgerald.
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, how many of these wrecks have... Ha- have you seen?
1: Over 150 on the the Great Lakes and a couple in the ocean. Most of the ones in the ocean that I've seen are related to the Great Lakes. So they were mm-hmm. built here and then brought out. So I, I kind of select where I'm going to go diving, especially you know, because I'm trying to make stories out of them. Um, I started mm-hmm. in 1905 looking for survivors and I didn't find anybody from there. But the, the wrecks that happened in Lake Superior, there was over 20 of them in this one series of storms that started in September. Everybody wrote in the newspaper how bad it wouldn't be another storm mm-hmm. it was just as bad. Believe it or not, November, the it thanks to brand new freighters, mm-hmm. nobody ought to be damped. And, so that really, you know, got my interest going. Then the 1913 storm is a very significant storm called the king of storms because 12 ships vanished in 1913 in one weekend. So think of 250 sailors being killed by two series of storms that came in that the captain saw the barometer go down. They knew the big waves were coming. Mm-hmm. The barometer came back up. They thought, let's go out. We're safe now. But they, they weren't. They had another storm behind it. And sadly, that's what happened to uh, a dozen of those freighters. And and it goes into stories that um, one guy threw a message in a bottle before he died. And that message was printed out and shared with his family. And that led me to write my book, Bottle Goodbyes, because there's so many of those messages that they found in these bottles. And it just became fascinating to me that I, I had to share them with people. The story of the Plymouth is one of the ones that's just... Tragically real, and I say that because with 200 bottle stories and bottle goodbyes, there's actually uh, a lot that weren't real. And in fact, two of them from Titanic uh, that I, I researched and are in the book weren't real. But the one from the the Plymouth was. It, it said goodbye, dear ones. I might see you in heaven. Um, it says pray for me, and then it, at the bottom of it, it said I felt so bad. I had another man write this part. But the lumber company owes me $35 so you can get it. So think of that. What, what would you write if it was your last, you know, moments living? What would you say? And I think that's pretty apt to his goodbyes. You know, I hope I see you in the afterlife. And then finally to put, collect the $35 the company still owes me.
0: Wow. Yeah, I don't know. That'd be a tough You've only got so much time to write. And you're just for a bottle like that to shove it in there. I don't know. That'd Be a it's toughie.
1: Crazy. We go in a book I talk about not only all the bottles that go, but also the designs of, of message tubes that were kind of the you, you're sinking and the bottle. It, it's very difficult to find if you're near the galley, especially more modern times when you weren't allowed to drink. or mm-hmm. it's absolutely hard to find a bottle. So they actually came with a message tube that was used on several ships, including the, the Milwaukee. And we go into details on. How that tube was found and how it, it ultimately helped us to discover why it sank.
0: That's really interesting. The story fast- just
1: captivate me.
0: I am fascinated by this, you know, because <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's just like growing up and hearing like my like I said, my father and his story is about Lake Erie, you know, it's just it, it just absolutely captivated me. Lake Erie has its
1: up. own stories, too. I mean, honestly, with a name like Erie, like I said, you <laughs> figure it's going to be weird. This is a lake that only has one deep spot. Think of, a, of a, how long Lake Erie is. And its average depth is 70 feet. So many of these ships, when they sink, their masts, which are 90 to 100 feet tall, mm-hmm. stick above the water. Yeah. So in the case of the largest shipwreck in Lake Erie, the the, the reed, They actually had two masts that the one guy climbed up on top of it, never got wet. All the other guys jumped into the water. And I talked to one of them in one of the interviews and it's just tragic. But the stories that come out from 1916, uh, Black Friday was a storm on Lake Erie that just devastated the area just north of Chicago. And this was a time when four ships went down and two ship captains were the only survivors of their crew. You know, we hear about, Ships going down and the captain staying at his post. But th- through a freak of, of just circumstance, uh, in the case of, of the filer, the captain climbed up into the mast and he was able to hang in there. But the guys, one by one overnight, fell into the lake. They couldn't hang on. Even his nephew fell into the lake. And uh, eventually one of the uh, the, the uh, ferries came by and, and picked him up, took him out one of the passenger boats and uh, saved him. But everybody else dropped into the lake. The same is true with the Whaleback Colgate, where Grashaw was the only guy that managed to hang onto that life raft after it flipped several times and drowned two of his uh, his co mates that were on the uh, raft. And it's just amazing to think that these were the only two. And then the photographs of the Butters when it went down. Um, how do you find in 1916 uh, a picture of a ship actually sinking in one of these storms? So it to me, it's just constantly is. is new information and even though it's been a hundred years for many of these stories i'm still finding details and many of them are by going to the bottom of the lake and looking around and and, you know seeing what we can find there
0: that's absolutely fascinating um how do you research all this stuff i mean obviously you're, you're 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 diving the wrecks but what's the other research process that you go through to find all this information out
1: so much charlotte has changed now as we get into this information age where people are scanning newspapers think about the the original uh, wheelsman when i started to write this one i was going through microfiche so you would go to the library you would have to guess on a date in this case let's say the the 1913 storm which i feature heavily in the, the wheelsman um, i actually found the wheelsman on the hp hogwood that sailed through the storm of 1913 and saw four of the ships that vanished forever. Well, I would go to the library and look at these reels of what looks like film and I'd have to go through every newspaper in order to find it. So if I knew the storm was from November 7th to the 9th, I would have to go a couple of days before to get the weather forecasts and anything mm-hmm. that's happening. And then I'd have to go all the way into, you know, three, four weeks later, looking at every single page to be able to find any stories that are there. Well, now I go into newspapers.com or NewsBank, or um, there's five or six different locations where I can get Wisconsin newspapers. I can get all of New York's newspapers. Even the uh, um, the government has a, a cache of several papers, including Chicago, um, and I'll pick the the news the code word of whatever the name of the ship might be. In this case, uh-huh. the H.B. Hoggood. And it just starts spitting out decades and decades of dates and articles that I can read and download and cross-reference. In the case of Bottle Goodbyes, I just typed in messages in a bottle and got 5 million hits on different stories. Now you're gonna get a lot of duplicates because you're looking at every newspaper. And and the Mm -hmm. truth is a lot of the Great Lakes papers have been thrown away. So I find a lot of stuff in Kansas and Oklahoma but it's not first person you know this is stuff that's been handed down through news services and uh, as you go older you, you really have to be suspect on what's there but it gives me great leads and it was something i could do during covid which for me being trapped in the house i, I at first was shocked you know I, I lost my job at pbs they laid 13 of us off at first you're like what am i going to do and then you just realize I've been waiting for this all my life That right. time, you know, and I feel horrible for the people who, who were sick or worse that lost loved ones. Um, for me, it was just a time of get over the whole the shock, know that you saved enough money and know that this is the time that you get now to research not only that, but also all of the stuff that I've done on the Evan Fitzgerald over 30 years, I went through and captured every interview, which is uh, probably 50 hours, and then go through my two-hour dive on the Ed and Fitzgerald in a submarine and look at every that every everything I said log and made into a four-hour podcast. So that is the time that I've taken. I hope I've taken the time, you know, to to you know, learn some things that I would have never do in my time. Uh-huh. You know, as you're older, you slow down, you've got kids now and they take up a wonderful amount of my time. My own kit too. I've got three kits too. So you try to balance all of it. But COVID really puts you into that mindset and that, that seclusion to do exactly what I do. And and even though the major museums, the major uh, libraries where I find my stuff were all closed down, I was able to find enough material to last me years. And then this summer, I went out with my my friends. I'm on the board of directors for the Whitefish mm-hmm. Point Museum and we found nine new shipwrecks this summer. So that time spent on the water was amazing. We had a couple of harrowing times and some storms, but really coming, um, most of the searching was flat. It was incredible and we have talented people like Daryl uh, Hertel who can look at a sonar even though it's 500 feet down and he can tell you that's a shipwreck. And then we dropped the robot down to take a look at it and it was just a really fascinating and, and very productive summer for
0: us. Um. When you see these shipwrecks, are you able to tell what what made them sink, or do you are you are you having to do extra research into that? I mean, like <laughs> the Titanic, obviously, you know, there's a big gap, there's a big cache there where it hit the, you know, where where. where, where you know, down the side where, where it hit the, um, the iceberg. So is, that, well, is it sometimes relatively easy to tell what, what took them down?
1: In many cases, yes. I mean, the Fitzgerald is obviously broken into two main pieces. Even on Titanic though, that scratch is actually below the, the where it's buried in the bottom. So if there hadn't been eyewitnesses to what happened, they might not be able to tell. I mean, they do have ground penetrating radar now that can really map that out with you know high dollar expense. But I think that many of those clues aren't so obvious. Um, mm-hmm. and, and when we do find like wrecks that are shallower, The ice action, the wave action breaks these wrecks up. Um, There's also a lot, you know, that uh, if if the wreck is in an area where it would hit another ship later on, and many ships actually run into shipwrecks. Uh, they would blow them up as hazards to navigation. So a lot of them aren't in good enough shape to tell exactly what happened, but still, you know, these ones in 500 feet of water, yeah, we can still see, in one case we saw the name Heinz Lumber still painted on it, even though it's been a hundred years. And you can tell, you know, very specifically, I know what ship that is, you know, it was lost with three other ships and we can start to put the details together. So some cases, We don't know what the ship is. We try to guess by length. We might Mm -hmm. try to go below deck because the name might be worn off or the name board might have been blown off. We'll have to go down and do uh, look for maybe some numbers, the hull numbers that would give us a corresponding number if it had been registered. Um, But other cases, uh, there's some shipwrecks that we can only guess on who they are because uh, there's not such great records. And if there was no insurance claims on it, that even makes it more and more difficult Mm -hmm. to do. So the sailing vessels are a lot harder than the steam vessels uh, that we know very specifically, like the Western Reserve is still missing, the Clemson on Lake Michigan is still missing. These are giant freighters that uh, we'll we'll definitely know when we see it, the Steinbrenner. um, There's several big ones that the Carruthers lost in 1913, is Mm -hmm. 550 feet long when we find it and measure it, we'll know exactly what ship that is without even mm-hmm. having to see a name. We'll know from the sonar, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what is the main, I mean, uh, there's a lot of weather and there's probably gonna be the answer, but what have you found in, in looking at all these wrecks was the main thing that, that kind of, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The main source of why they went down is, it, is oh. it mainly the weather out there, or is it is it other stuff like like I know like you get the stuff like the cyclops, you know, and they found out later on that the stuff exploded from the inside. You know, yeah, I, mean? I,
1: I don't think they found cyclops yet, so I I, I think okay. that's still just conjecture that right. you know okay. that they were hauling a hazardous right. cargo. Right, I, and I'm not I'm not real popular, Charlotte, on on my my reasoning for why ships say, because uh, there's one there's one word the captain. The captain, they make bad decisions, and some of those come from bad weather forecasting. Some of it comes from bravado, Mm -hmm. where the interview of the captain that followed the Edmund Fitzgerald um, was on board the Anderson, and Cooper was very emphatic that he trusts his ship. The Anderson would get him through anything, and and that's what these captains believe in many cases. Back in 1913, the captains would get bonuses for running cargoes. And remember, after December, the lakes freeze up, you know, most of the time it'll go solid. So no more cargo gets through. So whatever you can run from October, November and into December, hopefully by the time the Sioux Locks close, um, you get as much cargo in as you can. And back then you'd get a bonus. Now they know that that, you know, pushed a lot of skippers to make some bad calls. but. It still happens, you know, they, they turn the wrong place and they run up on the rocks or, you know, they get caught into weather that they, they shouldn't have bowed in. But, you know, who am I to armchair quarterback these guys too? I mean, these are professionals and the, the shipping company, uh, the old saying is you don't make money when you're at anchor. Mm-hmm. You, the only time you make money is when you're underway. Right. So, you know, there's that pressure too, to, you know, make your, your bosses happy. And, and so, you're, you know, it's getting through. Kate Fitzgerald, they looked at 10 years of the Sioux Locks where ships have come through to lower from Lake uh, at 18 feet higher mm-hmm. than Lake Huron. So you can lower down and go around the waterfall that's there or the rapids that are there. So they go in there and at that point, they'll make a log of when the boat's in there. So the Coast Guard looked at 10 years at the locks and the Fitzgerald had pushed through 10 years of storms, more so than <laughs> any other ship. So, they call him a heavy weather skipper because he was a guy, and every crew member that flew that actually sailed with McSorley told me the same thing. He didn't stop for anything. Captains before him did, and that saved them because the design and some of the problems with the Fitzgerald uh, led to her demise. So, a big series of bad judgment by the captain, a ship, especially like the Fitzgerald, that was, uh, was long and had been worked and really had some problems with the way she flexed. And then add in a big wave that hit the Anderson and passed it, actually sped up to the Fitzgerald who was just ahead of them, and that big wave pushed her main front hatch, just like Gordon Lightfoot sang in his song, the main hatchway gave in. That number one hatch collapsed in, pushed the nose under, and they didn't even have a chance to hit the radio to call for help. No maydays, Nobody made it to life boats. Nobody made it to the inflatable life rafts, which were all found. And they're now on display in museums. Um, so it, that I think led to the big mystery was why did 29 guys vanish? Not a mm-hmm. single body was found. And that's why I think that became, you know not only the legend it is now, but the big song. And of course, everybody has t-shirts and coffee mugs and everything mm-hmm. about it because of that.
0: Well, that's one thing I was wondering about the design uh, on these ships because you know when you think about that like the queen mary for instance my father had stories about that he he was never on the queen mary he knew people that were you know that that crossed the ocean on it and how the dang thing would would you back and forth all the time you know real day real dangerously yeah and so, so yeah as you were yeah as you were talking about that fitzgerald i was thinking about that how many of these ships had issues like that
1: a lot of them, you know, and a lot of them were like the the Eastland, the worst disaster on the Great Lakes wasn't even on the Great Lakes. It was in the Chicago River, well away from the lake. I mean, a mile away from the lake. And what happened was it was designed for the fruit trade. So it had a very narrow, you know, a hull. It was designed mm-hmm. for speed, not for hauling people. But later on, when they were no longer hauling apples and stuff from Michigan to Chicago by boat, that boat became a passenger vessel, and during the time of the Titanic, when they said we need more lifeboats, they loaded more onto the Eastland. and then they put a cement deck on on the top. So oh, and, and too many people. And they all ran to one side and it compensated the river. They were going to a picnic, and sadly, like 830 people drowned at the dock. And that's just what happens. it's just a person mm-hmm. way for that. So who blames? The designers thought they'd carry that many people. Oh, the the ship company—I think were uh, you know make with ship they Um, had—they can control which direction the people went. But ultimately, it came down to you know they shouldn't have had that many people on board, and they couldn't pump the water up to compensate you know for the the list as they tried to uh, you know pump water in to correct as the people moved around.
0: Right, right, right. In the case of the Fitzgerald now, because I know, like I said, everybody knows about that one. I mean, that's, did he like you say, the T-shirts and everything. What were some of the flaws on that, on that boat, the ship?
1: There was a lot. I mean, the first was the fact that the, the ship only had three cargo compartments. If it had more and if they had been watertight, then they could lose one or two of them and the ship would have still floated. But on the Fitzgerald, it had three, but they were separated by screen bulkheads, meaning the water wherever it came in could travel back and forth bow and stern. The second part was the pumping mechanism to get it out was located in the very aft of the ship. So if the ship was nose heavy, the water wouldn't even be able to get to the pump to get out and then add in 26,000 tons of essentially marbles. They look like Mm -hmm. marbles, it's taconite, which is a iron ore that's loaded into the ship. That clogs the rose box so you can't pump it out anyway. So, as water's coming in, the, the Coast Guard theorized that the hatches, there's 21 hatches on there, each one has 65 or 67 clamps around it. And they theorized that they weren't all dogged down, which was wow. bears out when you looked at it. But that wasn't the only problem. If that was, you know, if they only had water coming in there, I think they would have been fine. But unfortunately, the captain um, called the Anderson while they were coming past Caribou Shoals and they said they had some damage. And he said two vents were missing. And these vents are eight inch pipes that go into the ballast tanks to allow them to equalize the pressure. When the ship runs without cargo, they pump water on board so they can weigh it down under the water and the propeller can work more efficiently. So when you get to the place where you're gonna load your cargo, you pump the water out and load the ship up and it goes back down. Well, those those eight inch pipes were dumping Lake Superior down into the ballast tanks and they couldn't pump it out fast enough. So you have two sections of water coming in. Now it's taking a list and here comes that big wave and it's now, it's a ship. We don't know if it's leaning to starboard or port, but Mm -hmm. we all assume that it was probably leaning to starboard. Now it's got a big ramp for that big wave, 30 feet tall to come up. And the NTSB, which investigates the shipwrecks in addition Mm -hmm. to the Coast Guard, they said four feet of water on that hatch cover would collapse it. There was at least 12 feet of water on wow. that hatch cover. And it literally, when I went over in the submarine, was folded in. And all the windows in the lounge that were right to the um, front forward of that were all blown in from that wave hitting. So in my mind, there's no question that the, the sad ending of that ship was that big wave that pushed it under. And they just couldn't recover. And then once it went under, the hatch just blew, blew off. Two and three actually ended up back by the stern. I saw those as we went by in the submarine. And the stern section ripped off and rotated upside down. So it's propeller up, and the bow section is actually right side up. So very confusing on the bottom as to Hmm. how that wrecking process really was.
0: Oh, absolutely. What do you think is one of the saddest wrecks? that you've looked at? Oh,
1: man, I've never been asked that. I mean, every one of them is sad when they have a loss of life. And, and right. we're lucky. I mean, not lucky for the company that lost the ship, but there's many of the shipwrecks, um, even in November Gales, where the people walked away. And in many cases, uh, thank heavens for the Coast Guard and Lifesavers. In one case, uh, I, I talk in bottle goodbyes of, uh, of guys that rode out from uh, Charlotte, New York. And uh, actually went out and uh, rode 20 miles to catch up to a boat and save everybody on board, including two dogs, and then get back in the boat and row 20 more miles. It was so bad that the the surfman that did it or the keeper from the life-saving service was never the same, and he couldn't even pass that next year's physical, and he lost his job. And there was a big push by the government because of his rescue. He had a gold medal for saving lives. And they weren't going to help him out. And it took years for Congress to finally give them back pay. And once they said they were going to give it to him, he passed away months before. So never got to see that. Will we cover it in bottle goodbyes? Excuse me, the story is, is intense of the the noise of how it went down. And then the hall where the bottle came ashore from the steamer that was pulling them. Um, it's just an, an amazing story. And then to hear the story of the, of the keeper, it, it, it really puts a personality to it.
0: Mhm mhm Um now we well, you, you hear a lot about the Bermuda Triangle but I understand there's also a Great Lakes Triangle correct Well
1: I you know I'm going to differ with but in, in 1977 we we had a huge um, I only grew up with two TV stations CBS and PBS uh-huh. and luckily for me CBS had all the Jacques Cousteau specials but they also had it seemed like every Bermuda Triangle movie that came out, That the book sold, I think, 20 million copies. And, and mm-hmm. it's a big expanse. I mean, if you look at the amount of area in the ocean between Bermuda and especially, you know, the Carolinas, it, there's a lot of area there. I don't think it's enough to warrant a real triangle. And certainly the, the missing squadron is something to behold. But the Great Lakes have had bigger mysteries. And mm-hmm. we've had a, a full the 2501 Northwest flight that disappeared. We've, I've, I've actually dove on Tuskegee aircraft that um, went down during World War II. They were training in Lake uh, uh, Huron, and I could see the big star on the wing and everything. And um, But not giant mysteries. I mean, these are planes that were very susceptible in the case of the P-39 um, to having problems. I talked, right. talked to a couple of the black pilots that told me it was a squirrely aircraft with the engine behind them. And straight and level, you were okay, but if you went up... So a lot of these disappearances are very tied into events. I, I have yet to find anything on the Great Lakes that makes me scratch my head that there wasn't a wind blowing or something. The, the old adage is it sailed into the crack of the lake. The book that came out on the Great Lakes Triangle is, is a lot of hooey to me. I mean, it, okay. it, they set it up where it goes from uh, Michigan over to Sheboygan and then all the way down there's no more concentration in the wrecks that they put in there. where Many of them were lost in the 1940 storm. So it's not mysterious by any means. What we do have are, are strange concentrations of shipwrecks in okay. uh, like the graveyard of the Great Lakes off of Whitefish Point. Um, it's a fantastic uh, a diving area, but a tragic mm-hmm. place for ships because they all line up and they all try to get to the Sioux locks from there. And they're all trying to stay on the Michigan shoreline, but there's very little places to hide until you get around Whitefish Point, which is like a giant shark fin. So as the okay. Northwest winds come down, that's a place to hide. Another place uh, Death's Door is scary. And it, it's named for an area that the Native Americans named Death's Door and the French called it Port de mort by Green Bay. There's a lot of shipwrecks there, but again, you can kind of see a lot of it was just done in heavy weather and there's not a huge concentration. The most dangerous place on the lakes is off of Michigan's thumb. And it's because of the reefs that go as far as 10 miles out and they snag Mm -hmm. these ships. So um, is there stories we can't figure out? Absolutely. Is it impossible to think that we can't find 500, 600 long freighters in the Great Lakes? It is, but to think of the expanse of how much water is there. um, I think that that kind of makes sense. But I've been researching now 30 years. I've seen enough stories about lake monsters Starting in 1897, going all the way into modern times of, of sharks being found in uh, Chicago, um, mm-hmm. all kinds of, of things that are hard to explain. But usually, afterwards, I will find there's somebody like the shark was put there by somebody that you know later fessed up. Um, the lake monsters, we haven't figured out yet. In fact, they're so prevalent in Lake Erie that they actually have a hockey team called the Cleveland Lake Monsters. Uh-huh. So <laughs> it's, it's you know, supposedly a 30 foot long monster that uh, is like a giant snake and it made big hissing sounds. And, and they saw it in 52, they saw it um, several times. So, and then the, the chasing the UFOs, the, there was a, a ship or a plane, an F-89 Scorpion that vanished in 1953 and uh, it's still missing. I've I've seen some sonar that looks like it was a scorpion. They have a very unique tail, Um, so it might have been found, but no one's done any serious research, but he was supposedly chasing a UFO in November of 53, so there's a lot of stories, a B-52 crash that went down in Traverse City that nobody really knows exactly what happened, so there's enough of those, but we also have countless stories of gold on the Great Lakes. That is absolute nonsense. And that's what we get a lot of, is uh, the people looking for gold and treasure. And there's been a couple of books that have made a lot of money searching for them. Um, Trying to search for the Griffin, the first uh, lake or ship lost on the Great Lakes. And the upper Great Lakes um, is another one that's had um, books written since 1930. You know, People throwing uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars into searches. Um, for it. And will it be found? Probably. I mean, LaSalle lost several ships and they found one of them in the Gulf of Mexico. And if Mm -hmm. you go to Austin, which we were just there, what, three weeks ago, um, the the display is amazing. There's over a million artifacts they brought up from one of LaSalle's ships. So we hope that when we find La Griffin, that it'll have the cannons on board and we'll easily be able to tell that it's from 1679. But you never know. know, The Great Lakes are, are very mysterious in that way it, it takes a lot of time to be out there to find these things and uh it, it's just fun i mean the research is is just as fun as diving down and the second part is you know trying to find for the more modern wrecks the people who were involved and that to me is just captivating
0: you know you talked about the depth of lake erie what about the depth of the 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 you know, how deep are the other lakes
1: Oh, superior is 1300 feet, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, over 800 feet deep. So there's pockets that are really deep. Most divers weren't looking from, you know, the times of sea hunt to the Mm -hmm. 1970s when the real boom into the 1980s, lots of diving on the Great Lakes and it's tailed off as we go into 2020, 2021. Um, But most of the divers were only looking in less than 200 feet of water because it didn't make sense if you couldn't dive it. Why go look? So mm-hmm. they found pretty much anything that's shallow, and now the deeper targets are being more um, opened up as divers can use helium and mixed gases and computers to go down and have a clear head as you go into 300, 350, 400. There's even divers that dove the fits at 510 feet. So you can dive that. Also, um, underwater robots are, are becoming not only with a cable, but autonomous. Uh, robots are very inexpensive comparatively now. Um, I remember when I bought my first underwater housing, it was thousands of dollars. And now you can get a GoPro for 200, you know, and get pictures that were unimaginable back in uh, 92 when I started. So um, I think it's pretty amazing that the technology of not only the cameras, but also fish finders, uh, used to cost, um, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to have a good client side scan. Now, if you go out with a really good fish finder, you can actually count the masts on sailing vessels or see oh, detail nice. of anchors on the bottom because our sonar is so intense. I mean, it—you could pretty much tell species of fish by just by looking at it. That's how good the detail is now. So, for those who ship you know, shipwreck hunt, that, that's a big boon to be able to do it cheaper. And the big cost is, of course, your gasoline and your boat.
0: Well, I know I've uh, I've I've read books about the guys that look for the German submarines, huh. and I, I really marvel at what you do because I love reading those types of books. You know about about people that investigate shipwrecks. Is it dangerous? I mean, you know, for somebody that wants to go out and do that, is it a dangerous sport to do or a dangerous thing to be doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, for those guys that crawl into a German U-boat in the ocean with all kinds of, you know, <laughs> saltwater monsters and stuff. Yeah, I think that that's ridiculous. And as you go past 200, 300 feet. Right. Um, yeah. in the Great Lakes has a German submarine. They, we captured one during World War One, And it was disposed of because we had a treaty with Germany and France that we wouldn't keep them. And so we sank it and they relocated. So it's in 200 feet in Lake Michigan. And no one's really gone down there to bother. The the location is pretty secret because the company, I think, that found it wants to try to make money from Mm -hmm. it. Um, But, you know, there's some good examples of U-boats on the surface. I don't think there's a a need to spend millions of dollars to bring one up, you know, when we've got good, you know, understanding of what they're like now. Um, For other shipwrecks going down, yeah, there's divers. I've lost good friends diving, you know, that took risks and it's just like flying, you know, it's unforgiving. You you just don't get much margin for error when you're underwater. We're not designed to breathe underwater. Um, mm-hmm. But if you train well, and for me, that means not only my training that I got through, you know, PADI and, and through SSI, but also I joined the sheriff department and they taught me to be autonomous myself as we would look for bodies and guns in the river with zero visibility, high current, you learn to train in, in this environment and to do things by yourself because nobody can see you to help you. You know, they, they'd have to come down the line and try to grab me if I had a problem. We had communication units so we could at least talk. Mm-hmm. But um, that the training is so important, even with my flying. You know, you, you don't take anything for granted. You never crawl inside shipwrecks with a single tank. You know, you don't go in without a line. Um, and if you really got to think, is it worth going, you know, and doing certain things in certain mm-hmm. currents? Um, there's many times that I've been caught in river currents, and uh, it was really scary trying to pull my mask off in the St. Clair River, just trying to see a boom from a ship that was off. You know, you take a risk, you feel okay, and you you think- you know, brings you through and you also dive with people who are extremely confident mm-hmm. and that helps your chances of coming back. So to people, I would say diving is an amazingly safe, incredible sport. And I sit there and scream at TV shows that try to make it death defying. That makes the show more exciting, I guess, if if they go, you're going to risk my life. But the truth is, I don't risk my life. I go down there safely And if I need to, I'll take a robot down there. If it's too cold or too deep, um, Mm -hmm. there's other ways to get good pictures and I won't risk another diver. And there's people with 100 times the training I have, men, women um, of all ages that are superbly trained to go down and do 300, 400 feet, good to them. I just would never ask them to do that. Because I I just don't feel that that is safe. There's no redundancy. You know, it's very difficult when you have to come back up and you've got to wait on the line for an hour or so so your body gets acclimated to the pressure. If you come up right. too fast, your body will get bubbles and you could get the bends. So there's a lot that can go wrong if you don't go within what we consider the sport diving limits. If you do it within sport diving limits, I would say ninety nine percent safe. In fact. I tell most people the, the, mo- the most dangerous thing I do every day is drive my car. You know, that's where I'm going to get killed is on the, the roads in Detroit. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, I, I skydive, I take risks doing uh, all kinds of things. I've flown jets, B-52s and F-16s. Um, but the, the most dangerous thing I do is getting in my car where I can't control what the other driver's doing.
0: There you go. My next question was about the submarines. You talk about going down the submarines. What's it like going down the submarine? I did I did this in Hawaii, you know, in the, in, in the submarine there, but I don't think it's quite what I went through in Hawaii. What's it like? Because you see this oh. stuff like when James Cameron's down there with the Titanic and going around. <laughs> but what's it really like in, in those subs?
1: I think it's exactly what you saw in the submarine. As soon okay. as you went below the water and realized that you could still breathe, and for mine it was – not only sealing up so I didn't have to worry about pressure, so it stayed the same, I didn't have to equalize my nose. Uh The second was I stayed warm. I had a sweatshirt on and I was perfectly warm because it's 35 degrees at the bottom where the Edmund Fitzgerald is. That will zap your heat out, even if you're wearing a dry suit, which is a rubber suit with underwear underneath it, and many guys even wear electrical, you know, you still get cold, your hands and your feet, your mouth around your face. Um, when you ice dive, it gets really uncomfortable too. And I've done that with dry suits and wetsuits. So I've experienced that cold, getting into a submarine, shutting the hatch. And once you get over the feeling that you're you're stuck, you know, you're inside this and you hope you could get out if there's a problem. And then you go down and, and as it gets darker and darker, as you go past 200 feet, um, all of a sudden you lose all sunlight at three, 400 feet. And then the lights kick on and here's a shipwreck that is massive. And you're reading the name Edmund Fitzgerald that wow. the letters are, you know, bigger than the porthole that I have, So it's hard to see everything. You're just seeing two letters at a time. And then you're seeing damage with blankets hanging out of windows. And, you know, I saw a coffee cup on the bottom to realize that this was, you know, where men uh, actually lived on board these ships. Um, Mm -hmm. And then to see the devastation of what a lake can do to, to, you know, tear the steel and bend it back in uh, the nose of the Fitz is bent over 90 degrees on the very prow. It plowed into the bottom so hard. So you get a humbleness and you get excited because it's the most famous shipwreck on the Great Lakes. And then you realize there's people and it's a roller coaster. Happy, sad, happy, sad. And then when I came up, we had battery power in the submarine. And one of the kids that was on board, his dad owned the tugboat. He said, You know, his dad goes, Hey, I'll, I want to go down and see it. And we figured we'd get a deal on the boat, you know, the rental. So he went down and they found one of the first missing crewmen. So within yeah. 20 minutes of me coming up after being excited of what I saw, Here's the, the real reality of a guy with a life jacket laying on the bottom next to the bow. So it, it really was emotionally, it, it, it tore me up because you're happy and you're sad and you, you know, some of the family members that lost loved ones. And that's really tough to deal with.
0: Are the bodies um, skeletons when, when you do find them or are, are they somewhat preserved because they're in the water?
1: Yeah. And there's so many of them and I don't talk much. I mean, cause I think I'm too matter of fact about it. Remember I'm a sure. sheriff's diver. So we'd have right. guys that, you know, sadly there'd be suicides in the river or car accidents and, and our job was to go get them. And we would just talk about it very matter of factly. And I do realize that every wreck that I go to is a shipwreck and a gravesite. So mm-hmm. this is important that we realize that Every ship should be revered as a place where men lost their lives, and in many cases, women too, mm-hmm. on board. Sometimes the wives, sometimes the cooks, um, sometimes you know, passengers. So, it it I think as you go down there and and you see that you realize that this is their grave site. But on the case of the Camloops, it was lost in 1927. One of the engineers is still there, and he's still floating in there, and it still looks like a person. But this other body was outside of the shipwreck. It's very apparent that there's benthic animals like sculpin and burbot that are Mm -hmm. down there that, you know, would feed on that. And and sadly that, that happens. So, um, it is, it's sad. It it looked like something, I mean, I've watched enough natural, national geographics to, to see King Tut. It looked like a mummy person if you would, you know, think of that, but it was also shocking enough that I didn't want to see it again. I only saw the, the footage. And then um, I put the documentary together and didn't use any of the close-ups. So I only saw it once. The pictures that I chose for the documentary, I I was in a bad way because if you don't put something in there after we made all those headlines about finding the first missing crewman, we had to find something and we had to portray it in a way that would make it, you know, reverent. And we did what Dan Hall, the musician that does a lot of concerts with me. Uh, Almost all of my big interviews, he's written songs with David Norris about the storms and stuff, and they wrote a song about the body called It's Quiet Where They Sleep, all about the 29 guys sleeping down there, and that to me, along with the shot that we picked that was so far away, and it was after the submarine had gone around, so all there was this haze and just a bump on the bottom. And I felt it was it was tastefully done for you know what it was. It was a grave site, and I totally understand that that brings up horrifying thoughts for family members who lost loved ones. Mm-hmm. And I could never understand that impact. But I also understood that as a journalist and somebody that has seen a lot worse things on TV, I, I think right. of 9-11 you know, and the people jumping out and people using that footage or, you know, any war that we've seen, the bodies from Vietnam, the bodies from World War II, you know, all of that was grave sites too. Um, and we still see shipwrecks now from World War II and such that, you know, it evokes that same kind of sadness. Um, but right. this was a more modern one. And there's some family members who were very upset. And I totally get that. Will it stop me from from wanting to go back there? No. You know and and i i think i balance that out not from some eerie curiosity but mm-hmm. from the fact that i'm probably the most learned in all of the interviews i've done with all of the coast guard that that investigated it the coast guard that you know that were involved in in the safety precautions and such i've interviewed crew people i've interviewed the guys that built the ship i've interviewed sailors from the fitzgerald um and all the people who've investigated the wreck too so I'd like to go back with that new knowledge and, and get another look at it and see what we can do. But at this point, the Canadian Coast Guard is not allowing um, the process to go through. You can pr- you know, put in a permit and they'll, they'll hold it for whatever merit. And uh, quite honestly, I haven't submitted one because mm-hmm. right now I don't think that that's in good taste. So, but I'd like to go back. I think that um, all the ships I've done, I've had a lot of family members that come up and ask me about the 13 storm. Um, guys that were lost on the 1940 wrecks, like the Davick, the the engineer, the captain was from Detroit, his family. Um, I've, I've gotten to know, I've done interviews with, um, the engineer on the minch that was lost. I mean, all these people, um, become friends in many ways and they've lost loved ones and they don't feel the same way that the Fitzgerald, one or two members of the Fitzgerald family really feel, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sore about it. So, but I, my heart goes out to them. I mean, with all honesty, I totally understand why. And if you look at any of the chat rooms, boy, they get vicious on visiting shipwrecks. Mm -hmm. And um, that plays out. If you look at the Arizona at Pearl Harbor, um, you can't dive that, you know, that's a, that's off limits. And I get that, but I also know that uh, I've dove on other shipwrecks where sailors have been lost and Naval people too. And, you know, I, I guess it doesn't make the same amount of sense to me that You can go to one, but not the other. But I I do know also there's unscrupulous divers who would take things. And I've never taken anything off of a shipwreck. I I take that back. On the Jupiter, I have to admit, when it was um, burned up, I walked on the deck afterwards, and I found a valve cover. They told me they were going to sell things from it. And so I took it with full expectations that I could buy it. They never sold anything off of it. They gave some pieces to the museum. And I guess I have one of the very few artifacts that came off of it. But uh, that's the only thing I've ever taken from a shipwreck. And it's because I'm haunted by it. I mean, this is where people have died. I, I don't see how I would ever think that I could own something that would be from that because it is a gravesite.
0: I would think it would be really, I mean, as a journalist, you know, as a crime journalist like I have been, I've walked through murder scenes. You know, I've done that, and it is a surreal feeling when, when you are walking through it, or when your case diving or swimming through an area like that, because there there, there are people that have died there, you know. And, and in your case, some of them are still there, even. So, well, I, I mean, it, it's just a surreal feeling,
1: it is. And I, I you know, if you think about that, if, if you think of like the Manson murders, all that stuff has, has all been, you know, in many cases, either cleaned up or in many cases, destroyed, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, the places where horrific things happen, many times those are erased, a bus crash or a plane crash. We had a big one in Detroit that, you know, there's no trace of that anymore. But in the case of shipwrecks, they're down there and all the details are there because no one can touch them. So there's a certain responsibility of a crime scene, if you will, or just being able to go to where this history is and have access to that. And mm-hmm. I don't take that lightly. That That is very important to me. And, and I believe by getting the true story and by preserving that, everybody knows the Fitzgerald because of Gordon Song. Nobody knows about the Price and the Regina or, or the Minch or the Davick or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Grashaw g- going on the Colgate, the, the Morita. These ships have all been forgotten by time, except for the, by the most diehard you know, ship fans that have read right. the books and stuff and or maybe heard my podcasts, um, And that's kind of what I think my whole job now is to put them in book form or in my case, because I've been so lucky to capture actual audio um, to make podcasts. Shipwreckpodcast.com is my site. And that is where I have, you know, probably 25 hours of the best stories on the Great Lakes. But it's not just me telling it it's the people that were there. And it's not just from interviews I've got. I've also become very good at finding archive footage and interviews from Rex in 1934, Rex in 1927. So things that people don't know even existed, and I find them and and bring them back up and Bring these things back to life so that people can remember these storms that in many cases took more lives than the Fitzgerald, sank more ships than the Fitzgerald. You know, the scope on the Fitzgerald storm of 65, 70 mile an hour winds, that's bad. But that happens on the Great Lakes right now. You know, that, uh-huh. that happens all the time. Think of uh, 1940 when 126 mile an hour winds tore apart a suspension bridge in Washington State, then came to the Great Lakes and tipped over one of the big freighters, ripped the the Minch in half, and uh, just pushed the the Novodoc right up on the beach. And I've got the interviews from the guy that was at the wheel that did it.
0: You know, um, I was just thinking too, you know, the mind's eye, when you talk about these wrecks and the, and the storms and all this and what they went through, you can you can imagine pretty much what it was like to realize that the, the the ship was going down and you're on it and there's nothing you can do about it.
1: That I live with that all the time, you know, and especially as I go out on some of our missions when we were looking for wrecks this summer and we had minor wind, yeah, you know, like 10 to 12 foot waves mm-hmm. are nothing comparatively, but it was tossing us around. I filmed it um i was also on board the research vessel laurentian when we came back and i was hitting the ceiling from my bunk so i've been in some minor weather um mm-hmm. where sailors would laugh at me for saying i survived anything but the truth is to to be out there or to float in that water and i have uh, over the carl bradley the largest shipwreck in lake uh lake michigan it's 300 feet deep and there were 33 guys that lost their lives there and you think about Every one of those lives, as you're floating there, realizing that that's where they were at. And in the case of uh, two survivors, Mays and Fleming, they floated off on a life raft, and that thing flipped over several times. You know, when you go to the Daniel J. Morrell, it's 200 feet deep and ripped in two pieces. The stern Mm -hmm. kept going for five miles, and Dennis Hale survived that thing. He made it through two nights in his underwear in November, November 28th on the great lakes so it was snowing and all the other guys froze on the raft next to him and he survived so that to me is just amazing and that's why i i not only interviewed dennis but i published his book for him it was just too good of a story not to and now Absolutely. that he's gone it's tough you know i mean that's i miss him but uh, at least those stories still preserve
0: yeah it's just it's just incredible you know people don't realize you know or, or think about that you know what, what these people actually went through. Like I say, you go back to movies, you know, you go back to Titanic, you bet, you go back to um, um, one with uh, George Clooney, you know. Oh,
1: yeah. Um, oh, oh, yeah. You know, the perfect storm. To, or, yeah, perfect you know. storm. You
0: go back to that one. Yeah. You know, you just, that, that's the visions you have. But when it's actually happening to you and, you're, and you realize, like you say with the message in the bottle thing, that, you know, that, that you're going to die. That's it. There's no turning back on it. It's got to be an incredible, overwhelming thing to go through.
1: And it still happens today. I mean, even on the Fitzgerald, there was talk on on the ship behind them, the Anderson, that a guy made a tape recording of his last will and testament. You know, so people still, even with cell phones, and uh, now we have all kinds of technology, I think you want to get out that last goodbye. Mm -hmm,
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One last quick question is, I'm always wondering about this.
1: Oh, did I lose you? Charlotte, I hope I can get you back because I don't hear you. But that'll be a mystery, won't it? I'll give it another minute here. If you can hear me, it's been fantastic talking to you. I hope people will go to my website, rickfury.com or go to shipwreckpodcast.com. You can also just search uh, Rick Mixer. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Now I can hear you. Yeah, we're back. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm so glad because you had a question and I was totally lost.
0: I tell you, the, <laughs> yeah, so was I. I. I think it's where, you know, like uh, when you're playing Super Mario, yeah.
1: that's, where, that's where they
0: all end up. <laughs>
1: Please, what is your question?
0: Uh, it's just the, just the weather's so bad out here right now. Um, what's the difference between a wet and dry suit?
1: The wetsuit is, um, it's permeable. So the water comes in and the the design is that your body will warm up the water that goes next to your skin. So you're perfectly good for, you know, let's say 60 to... 70 80 degrees if it's above 70 degrees it's hot so you want to wear a shorty or you want to wear something really thin or a dive skin Mm -hmm. dry suits are completely sealed so it's like wearing a balloon and i've got to be careful because as i go down i get squeezed in that suit if i don't push air into it so it's it's like wearing a pair of waders and it will crush you like a ziploc baggie so it's a little more work especially if you have a camera in your hand it's tough to, to run all those things but you get used to it once
0: you train. Gotcha. Rick, I want to thank you for coming on. This was fantastic. Absolutely. I my really pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was really fun. I learned a lot about this. And, you know, like I said, I grew up around some of those stories. And, and it's, just, it's just incredible to hear them. And it's also sad at the same time.
1: It, it really is. And if you want to hear more, shipwreckpodcast.com or go to okay. lakefury.com has my... Okay. Uh, My stories there and I'd love to to make sure people get to hear them.
0: Absolutely. And where can people get your books?
1: Go to your favorite maritime museum. Most places around the Great Lakes have them. If not, you can also find it at lakefury.com. Just click on the store and that's the best place. I unfortunately can't get it through uh, my friends at Amazon because of the shipping costs that beats me up too bad in price. So sadly, lakefury.com is the only place you can get them if you're out of the Great Lakes area.
0: All right, sounds good. Thank you so much, and I'd love to get you on again to talk about this some more. Anytime, because you this want to is talk. fantastic. It All would right, be my Rick, pleasure. you have a good holiday, sir. You too. I appreciate you. Uh, thank you very much. Bye bye. bye bye. All right, guys, that was fantastic. I learned a lot. I mean, like I said, I grew up around those stories, and I remember um, there's one area. Uh, in Cleveland, where if you stand off the corner, you can feel the, the, the north wind coming in from Canada because these a lot of, you know, the majority of, the, of these lakes are, are bordered on, on the other side by Canada. And that's, like I said, to get an idea of the size, that's, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at, you know, these states like, like, like Michigan and Ohio that. You know, the water goes all the way there. Anyway, I want to thank Rick for coming on, and I appreciate him coming on. And if you like the show, share it with five people. If you didn't like the show, share it with share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. Tomorrow, we're going to have Holly, I hope I got his name right, Holly Sarditna is going to be on tomorrow, and he is going to be comparing aliens with stories of what's happening in the Bible. He's found comparisons to kind of prove that it, that aliens were here and, and that they had written about him in the Bible. So he's going to be with us tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Um, again, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five people. Anyway, equal opportunity. Also, if you like the show, please uh, visit, the, visit our YouTube site or visit our website at www.californiahuntsradio.com and click on subscribe because we're looking for YouTube subscribers. We want to keep building that up. You know you guys are doing a great job of that but we still want more and more and more right more the merrier uh, as you can see on the bottom um we like i told you earlier we are a non-profit organization so everything that costs for the show comes out of my pocket so there's a couple ways you can help me out with that because we want to keep this equipment going in the mic we want to keep stuff like that going in the cameras and the internet and all that good stuff and the only way to do that is for me to pay for it out of my pocket. But if you could help me out a little bit with that, I'd appreciate it. You can donate to PayPal.me at California Haunts, or if you have issues with PayPal, we also have a Venmo, which is really simple. You log into Venmo and you just type in California Haunts, and boom, that's it. It's that fast. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming tonight, and I will see you guys tomorrow same time, 6:30 p.m. Pacific, and uh, we'll be talking about aliens and the Bible. So have a good Evening, guys.